Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 76. I hope everybody's been having a fantastic summer. Um, We took a few weeks off here at the Drum Shuffle, had all kinds of cool stuff going on personally in my life. So we took a few weeks uh, away from the podcast just so I could get uh, everybody squared away where they needed to be. Uh, so it's, it's been a very eventful summer here in Kentucky for my family. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed the summer. Uh, we just got past the Labor Day weekend, so uh, we're, we're, we're back full swing here. Uh, and we have just a fantastic episode for you today. One of my all-time favorite characters in the world of drumming is going to be stopping by here in just a minute. We'll be joined by the great Donnie Wynn right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by the great Donnie Wynn. Uh, if you're not familiar with that name, uh, let me just put it this way. He spent over 20 years playing in Robert Palmer's unbelievable band. So when you think about Addicted to Love, that's Donnie Wynn. Uh, it, it just had a f- fantastic career with Robert Palmer. And uh, then he moved on. He played for several years with the stellar country duo Brooks and Dunn uh, when they ruled the world in the 90s. Uh, and then more recently, Donnie uh, was putting together a band with Robert Plant when Robert was living down in Austin, Texas. Donnie is also a world-class photographer. Um, His photography is just so artistic, 
But when I say one of my favorite characters in the world of drumming, you're going to hear from this interview. Uh, not many folks have a zest for life in quite the same way that Donnie Wynn has. It was just my pleasure to get him on the phone and talk to him uh, and get to know a little bit more about his fantastic life uh, behind the kit. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the wonderful Donnie Wynn. Good evening, Donnie. How's it going, man? Well, I'm alive, I am breathing, and I'm standing above ground. That's a damn good day. <laughs> That's uh, my granddad always used to say, every day above ground is a good day. So, uh, well, he, your dad, he knew. Yes. He, he absolutely knew. <laughs> he, he absolutely did. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it. Uh, it's funny when a lot of people talk to me about drums, I always tell people I don't really know what it is I do. <laughs> and that, that's, there's a lot of truth to that, but there's also the other side where if I break it down, I can. there is a lot that I know what I'm doing, and I can explain it, and I can say it, and it just... And you just never know what you're going to say that sometimes it's going to hit somebody and, and, and crack open that, you know, turn on that light above their head. You know, you just never know. So it's, I like doing things like this. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that's very telling, you know, because there are, you know, that's why there are more than, you know, there's more than one drum teacher in the world. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> you go find the, the guru that, that works for you, you know, I think. But, uh, you know, your career is just absolutely legendary. I've been such a fan of your playing for so long. I'm just, you know, tickled pink that you're on the show. Um, you started very, very young, and I want you to kind of share that story with our listeners because you, you started drumming at, at what, age three? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. So you, you're, uh, but I knew I wanted to be a drummer way before that, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were literally born into it then. Well, I was very lucky that I was born to young parents. Uh, they had just graduated high school, and a year and a half later, along I came. And they lived in, of all places, Memphis, Tennessee. And when was the year? 1956, when oh, wow. it was the musical capital of the world. Yeah. You know? And so I'll never forget, there was one uh, Sunday afternoon we always ate the same thing. It was a roast. This is typical Southern meal, right? Roast with potatoes and carrots and onions. I'm sure if you've grown up in Louisville, you probably have had that from time. Absolutely. Many, many times. But uh, certainly when we had the Sunday thing, but dad had gone to a record store. No, I didn't know it was a record store. I just knew that he kept holding up during the, the lunch or supper, as we called it. Um, he kept holding up these two little white squares. And in the middle of the white squares were these little round circles. And one of them was purple and the other one was blue. And he kept saying, boy, I got a surprise for you. Boy, I got a surprise for you. Of course, I was ready for it. You know, whatever the surprise <laughs> was, I'm game. Right. And uh, there was this little record player that was in this middle room. My sister had not yet been born. And so... This was going to be her room, but in the meantime, it was just this room that this record player was in. But I didn't know it was a record player because I'd never heard music yet. And, uh, there was just no playing of it around the house. 
But I would play with this dadgum thing. I would spin the thing around, you know, the turntable around. I would lift up the things that go and, and you know, just playing with the dadgum thing. Um, but I never knew what it was for. And then after we finished the supper, he brought me back to that room and, and took one of these. He took the blue one out first. And he put it, you know, he got this big fat spindle out. And then he jammed it down on a thin spindle, you know, in the, in the middle of the turntable. And I'm like, oh, he's messing with that thing. You know, what what's going to happen here? And all of a sudden, you know, he turned a, a, a knob. And then all of a sudden, the thing started turning around by itself. And then all of a sudden, the thing fell. And then the thing lifted up and went over towards it and then went down on it. And I will ne- I mean, I remember it. And the reason I'm able to tell it is because I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, but that sound of the needle hitting the record, we all know what that is. It's a little popping and scratching and that sound, you know. Well, I'm like, whoa, what? whoa, what is that? I mean, I was already intrigued enough that this machine that I was so curious about was suddenly being put to use. But now there's this sound coming out, and wait a second, and all of a sudden, boom, the music started. It was all shook up by Elvis Presley. <laughs> so I got to hear Mr. Fontana right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, playing probably, what, Yellow Pages or something, I would imagine what they were doing. But uh, it was just stunning to me. And I was just, I mean, beyond knocked out and beyond jacked up. And, of course, I was listening to the drums immediately. There was no question about it. I wasn't listening to guitar, voice, anything. It was the drums. And, I, of course, I don't know how many times I made him you know, play it before he said, hey, we've got the other one over here, the purple one, right? So let's <laughs> listen to that. Yes, go ahead. I'm, I, I'm game. I'm now wide open, you know. Uh, book. I'm ready for this. And uh, he puts it on, same thing again, you know, spinning around drops, that sound, and then boom, I'm walking by Fast Domino. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if, is, if that's, is that Smokey Johnson or is that Earl Palmer? Um, that? that may have I mean, been Palmer, Smokey, I think. Yeah, I think it might have been Earl, but I know Smokey was his longtime drummer. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, those are the two songs I heard, the very first pieces of music I heard. And I mean, I was just, and I don't know how many times I made Dad play that one, bro, a lot. I just was totally drawn to the drums. And from that moment on, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, there was no drums around the house or anything like that, but at age three, I had an aunt on my dad's side. She was a... Uh, she had taught herself how to play piano, and she played like the real Appalachian people play, the real mountain people played. It's very floral and decorative. They're not like, you know, they're not blocking chords and stuff like that. It's not that at all. It's something completely different. And that's the way she played. And I don't know why or, or, or I have no idea why, but, yeah, she got me this drum set. For Christmas when I was three, and yeah, I started making music. I would take the damn thing out on the driveway and give concerts to the neighborhood kids. I mean, it was just <laughs> it was it was the business. And then 
uh, as time, I'll kind of scoot you ahead a little bit. So that's when I started playing and, and made me start listening to music even uh, with a much more of a focus. Of what is that drummer actually doing? What is making that sound? You know, I started analyzing things by that time. And my parents had gotten me another little toy snare drum, but it was still a toy. But they had that, I graduated from that little really primitive toy kit to this kind of better snare drum, but it was still a toy. Well, as luck would have it, my buddy two doors down had one, his broke. So, that became my de facto Tom. Oh, okay. So uh, I hear the song Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones. Well, you know, that's, it, you know, you got the whole, you know, tacit on the, on the verse. You don't have to come into the chorus. And then you get to play this cool little Tom feel. And I'll never forget uh, this next door neighbor. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted someone to hear it. And I would turn my mom and dad's console stereo up as loud as it would go. And then I put that Ruby Tuesday on and I played it for him and he just, eyes huge, big around, you know, just couldn't believe it. He says, man, we got to get you a, a, a gig. We got to get you a job. And I was like, well, sure. Yeah. Where? And later on that afternoon, he comes, he goes, I got you a gig. I'm, I'm going to be your manager. Okay, great. Where? <laughs> and as it turns out, these older girls live down the street. And they were having a slumber party. <laughs> this and he is, goes, you know, epic. You, you, you get to play, you know, for them tonight. I was like, you're shitting me. Oh, my, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I actually was saying you're shitting me by now. That's this is like third or fourth grade. So I was using that kind of language. <laughs> but uh, it's fourth grade. It was actually fourth grade because I remember the girls were in the fifth grade. So I grabbed my two little drums in the 45 and I go hiking down the street to the girl's house and I go in and I'm really shy. So I tell them, I'm like, listen, you've got to hide behind the curtains, get behind the couch, you know, anything, because I, I can't see you looking at me or I just won't be able to do it. So they agree. And, you know, put the record on, I start playing it. And then slowly I start hearing these little squeals. You know, and then one girl would poke her head around the side of the, of the curtain and she'd squeal and go back. And then it's more squeals, more squeals. And finally, they all came up and they're squealing. And I finished the song and they're screaming even louder. And they all rushed me and started giving me kisses. Oh, that's fantastic. That's that's an epic story. That's and epic. I remember grabbing those two snare drums and walking home that night. It was dark by now. And I just remember going, that's it. I mean, th that's it. That this is if, if that's if I can get that kind of reaction from people through what I do, then this is what I want to do. And that was pretty much it. Uh, that's when I decided to do it. Now, it would be several more years before I actually committed to it. I had to get a little older first. I didn't really commit to something until I heard Jimi Hendrix, and that was in the seventh or eighth grade. And from there, I, that was when, okay, this time to get serious about it. Yeah, well, and you started working at about that age, like 13, 14 years old. You, you became... Yeah a gigging drummer and yeah. you know I, I have heard and you'll have to you know kind of fill me in on this but i've heard that there was a fake mustache involved 
<laughs> well, I, you know, I had to get a fake mustache because I couldn't smile because I had braces. Oh, okay. So, and, and because I had started playing earlier than, than most people my age at that time, um, I was playing with older people. Uh, like when I was 13, I was playing with guys that were in their 20s. You know, they were married, you know, all kind of things. But, yeah, I remember the first gig uh, that we had booked. Um, it was a big standing gig at Marcy's Fiesta Club in Alexandria, Louisiana. And uh, it was it was well known that, uh, well, that this band was together. Well, actually, the band got together because... I was in the car one day, and someone pointed to this guy's house and said, you know who lives there? Who? That's James Cole. He's the best guitarist in the state of Louisiana. Really? So one day I got on my little banana seat bike, and I rode all the way over there uh, across highways and everything, and I went, went to his front door and knocked on it. He answered the door, yes, can I help you? I said, I'm here to start a band with you. And he looked at me he started laughing you know because I, I was a little i was a little baby kid and and and, and i said no I'm, I'm i'm here to to start a band i'm, I'm not kidding and he goes no oh, really i mean and then he looked at me he goes are you serious i said you better fucking believe i'm serious that's why i'm here i drove his bike all the way over here and so we put a band together and that was this this band uh we won all sorts of battle the bands and stuff and so yeah, we ended up booking this gig at this big club that was a hot club in town. You know, it's where everybody was at. All the good-looking girls were there, so naturally all the guys went there. But it was a big night. We were making our grand opening appearance, and I'll never forget being in there. And there was a strange older guy sitting at the bar before we even went on. I remember thinking, what is that old part doing in here, you know? And then we got up, and uh, it was an Almond Brothers song that we were playing that we started off with. Um, and all of a sudden, the guy walked up and was sitting on our keyboard player's B3, and which I thought was, uh, it made me kind of angry that he, you know, thought that he could go up and just sit on the guy's instrument while he was playing it. But anyway, the guy asked for our, um, for id from me and i just said i'm with the band well of course before all was said and done i was out and they had to just you know get someone from the crowd to come up and play and the girls uh from the guys in the band they put me in a car and said no we're not going to stand for this so they went and some like a pack of sack or something and they bought me a fake mustache (laughs) and Went back to the club. We got back in. They asked me to sit in. I got up and was playing again. And I'll be damned if the guy didn't come back. He had forgotten something. And he came back, and boom, there I was again. Of course, you could tell it was me. So, yeah, boom, they bounced me out. I got fired from that band because I couldn't play clubs. <laughs> but but when the time came again, just a couple more years down the road, uh, it became imperative to where a fake mustache, <laughs> which was all fine and good, you know, and, and I had gotten a better model, you know, I wasn't wearing the pack of sack one anymore, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I had the spirit, uh, gum and the whole bit to, to put it on. And, but I'll never forget. I was wearing it for oh, a couple of years, you know, so I could appear and nothing ever happened again. I was able to get by everything. 
But I got into the age to where in Louisiana, you know, when you're past 16, they really don't care anymore. As long as you handle yourself like a, you know, like you should, yeah, and don't act a fool, you know, you would they they would allow you to come in and play and do all these kind of things. But I thought, man, the mustache looks good. I'm just going to continue to wear it, and I'll never <laughs> forget we played this. Um, it was in Natchitoches, Louisiana. It was at some frat house we played. So that would be a time where I necessarily wouldn't have to wear it. But I thought, no, I'll wear it anyway, because it just looks cool. And I'll never forget these two really, really good-looking girls were standing just directly in front of me and were just looking at me. There's no doubt about it. And, of course, you know, yeah, this is good. I'm, I'm, I'm showing off a little bit and doing my thing, and they're liking it, and I'm having fun, and all of a sudden half that fake mustache comes off my face. <laughs> and the girls, just their faces dropped, and they started laughing, and I was like, oh, God, that was the last time I ever wore that fake mustache. <laughs> well, I, I don't know where I heard that story. It's been years ago, but uh, I heard the story that, to get, you know, into a gig, you had to wear a fake mustache. That's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I couldn't and I couldn't smile because I had braces. So yeah, that was that was my shtick. Yeah, it was dead giveaway. The the drummer with <laughs> braces, he's probably not old enough to be in here. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, but, lu- but luckily, I grew up in South Louisiana, where you know, at a certain age, yeah, you're you're suddenly you're fine. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point, you know, growing up in Louisiana, you know, and we'll talk about how you transitioned into some of these other gigs, but did you stay in Louisiana into adulthood or did you, I mean, I don't know, did you relocate someplace as you were chasing your career as a drummer? Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean. There was a guy named Gigi Shin. He was a, a wonderful singer and entertainer. Uh, died in the wool cage and played with the band Chase for a little while. He sang with them. He also played trumpet. But it was kind of the de facto band that if you were ever going to go on and do something musically in life, you kind of had to go through his band. Yeah, okay. It, it, it was a rite of passage. And I, but you were still doing top 40, you know, I mean, he still was covering all, you know, all sorts of music that was, and that was the good thing about South Louisiana is you had to kind of play all kinds of music because they liked all kinds of music. Yeah. And if you didn't do it well, they would, you know, throw bottles at you and and light Roman candles and shoot them at you, (laughs) you know, if if you didn't do it right. So you had to get good real, real fast or, you know, pay the price. Right. But when I left Gigi's band, I had seen this band called the Levy Band. And a real good friend of mine, Bobby Kimball, who ended up being the lead singer for Toto, he was in that band. And uh, I remember sitting with his girl, Harriet, uh, one night watching them. And I was like, you know, it's I've played with Gigi now for two years, and it's been good. I've learned a lot. I mean, he's taught me so much. But, man, if I had to leave and go anywhere else, I would want to be in this band. And so I did. And uh, we did really, really well. And uh, we a lot of songs, because it was all original material. 
And uh, and then all of a sudden, Bobby decided to move to um, California. He had had an offer from SS Pools. It was the Three Dog Night Band, but without the singers. Okay. And they were recording with Richie Podler, who was uh, the big producer who had done all their records and everything. But And then I ended up following Bobby out there. And uh, about the time I got out there was when the guys from Toto had already were, they had put that band together and they were, you know, starting to write songs and record by that time. But that's, that's what happened was, yeah, when Bobby left and moved out there, I was like, well, this, you know, there's only so far you can go in Louisiana. I mean, New Orleans is an amazing place, and there's been some great drummers like Johnny Vodakovich, you know, who decided that's where he wanted to stay and, and have his life. And it's wonderful. He taught, you know, at Loyola. He, um, and, uh you know, the food was great. The girls were pretty and, you know, you can play what kind of music you want to. Uh, so it, but New Orleans was not a bad place, but if anywhere else, you kind of were stuck in a box. And so, yeah, it was, it was, where are you going to do it? New York, you know, Nashville or LA? Well, yeah. I, Nashville was out. I didn't like country music then. I do now, uh, at least the older country music, should I say. And uh, I didn't know anybody in New York, and I knew one person in L.A., which was Bobby. So, <laughs> so well, it narrowed it, it down. Narrowed, yeah, It narrowed it down quick. And so, yeah, I went there when I was, uh, oh, about 17, I think. Oh, so you're still really young then when you when you went yeah. west. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I, so if, if Bobby then, you know, he, he had already – kind of started doing the Toto thing, which is just incredible. I did not know that about you. That's that's so incredible, first of all, to, to have that connection. But mm. when you got there, if he's tied up doing this other thing, getting ready to start making records with them, um, you know, presumably you kind of, you know, hung your shingle out, so to speak, and started picking up gigs in L.A.? Well, what happened was uh, the first time I went out there to visit him, he was still doing the thing. He had not met the guys in Toto yet. He was still doing the SS Fools thing. And as it turned out, Dr. John was had auditions in town. And I was like, I, yeah, I'd love to play with Mac. You know, uh, I mean, even then, he, he had a great reputation. And so... Uh, I went down to the audition area, and oh, I, I thought, oh, God, I'll never forget this. All these guys were all dressed up, and they looked so much. I mean, one guy had a pair of gold sparkle sticks. Uh, another <laughs> one had a couple of, a girl on each arm, you know, and I was like, man, these guys are way cooler than me. I'm not going to get this gig. But anyway, they called me in there, and uh, I forget what he called out, but anyway, it was second line, and, of course, that's, my backyard going up in South Louisiana. <laughs> I grew and up so in I it, man. In, I, jump, I jumped into it immediately, and he just stopped like about eight bars into it. He goes, where are you from? I said, South Louisiana. He goes, auditions are over. This is our new drama. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And that was it. And I was out with him for a year or so. And then, and then my father had a bunch of businesses, and I, I, he wanted me to give it a shot. And so I did, and when I was doing it, I had gotten a call to go record with these guys from New Orleans. Uh, some, I mean, older cats, badasses, because I had this reputation as the young hotshot. 
And so I went down there to studio in the country to do it. And they, uh, Cy Frost was producing and uh, from Apple Records. And I mean, it was just all these badasses. And I sat down, and from second one, I knew something was terribly wrong. And they kept saying, man, you know, you got chops for days, but you got no pocket. And I even, they tried to put a metronome on me, and I told them the metronome was wrong. That's how bold <laughs> I was. Uh, but I just, I had never been in a studio. Yeah. I mean, it was my first time. And so they were like, well, sorry, but, you know, you're fired. <laughs> and, I, and I remember going back to the tape room going, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I thought I was just badass, and I just got fired from my first session. And, uh, but as I'm sitting there, they put on this Barbara Mangerell guy, the tape guy was doing something, making a dupe of it, uh, something they had recorded. And, uh, and I'm listening to this Barbara Mangerell stuff and the grooves are, I mean, a mile wide. And I'm like, Oh, that's what they're talking about. Pocket, this groove. So I asked the guy, I was like, who's the drummer on this? And he said, Larry London. Of course. I'd never, I'd never heard of Larry at all, but eventually he would be one of my mentors along with Jeff Picaro. But at the time I didn't know it. So I went back home and quit playing for about a year when I was doing my thing with my dad. And I just would, I bought every groove record that I could. I bought the last record album by Little Feet. I bought this Aretha Franklin record, um, Asia. There were several records that I got, but Little Feet uh, was the main one. Richie just, I just understood Richie and he understood me. We just, we came out of the same, crawled out of the same hole. I don't know what it is, but... Uh, but yeah, I learned these records lick for lick. I mean, lick for lick. And it's funny, later on in life, I read with Hunter Thompson, when he was learning to write, he wrote The Great Gatsby, Great Gatsby, rather, and uh, a few other ones, you know, typed them out word for word. So he would understand the rhythm and why this worked and da da da. Well, it was the same thing for me. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm learning this stuff lick for lick, and it was teaching me. Okay, when you do this feel, that's what made the singer and the guitar player feel this. And when he held out and did this, it made this do this. And you could kind of figure out how and why it all worked. Yeah, it's it's and the language so, the language of drumming. You know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and. After, you know, I was about ready uh, to go out to California again, and I did. Uh, I, I told my dad I had done this. Um, I had gone down to this studio that was in town, and this guy played me this music, and I was just like, oh, man, I have got to play drums on this. It was Leon Telly from The Meters. Yeah, and he they were they were recording a bunch of stuff in this little guy's studio, the Sound Doctor, and uh, the Sound Doctor was a terrible drummer, and he had played drums on it. And I was like, man, would you please let me replace your drums? <laughs> you know, and he was totally cool with it, and he let me do it, and I, you know, and so I was able to put in, into play everything I'd been learning from that year prior to just studying all these things. And this was my first time to put it into play, you know, make it work, you know. Yeah. Because I had gone from being a chops drummer to song drummer. That was the change that I made. 
the song became way more important than whatever feel I could do to make myself look good, you know? Yeah. And uh, ironically, uh, when I went out to California, but Leo actually came to the dealership and just goes, what are you doing here? You know, you should be making music, you know? You have a gift. I don't know what to tell you. You don't need to be here doing this. So my dad was cool, and he let me go. And so Bobby and I ended up getting a house together out in, uh, oh, God, what was the name of that little town? Uh, it was right by Van Nuys, uh, Sherman Oaks. Sherman okay, Oaks. yeah. Yeah, so we had a house there in Sherman Oaks, and and, uh, and my dad gave me a year. Uh, you know, he says, if you don't have anything going in the year, well, come on back. You know, you got a place here. Don't worry about it, because he was going to give me all the businesses by the time I was 28, which was going to be a great deal. I was going to be a very wealthy young man. But, uh, and it's kind of an odd story the way I ended up back in New Orleans, but I'll just kind of quickly cut to the chase and we can get into the story again if you want. But basically, that's what Robert Palmer heard, that that, that I played on with Leo Nocentelli. That's what he heard. That's what he hired me for. Well, so, and I want to just say this, okay? I've wanted to say this for a long time, and I, I tell anybody that'll listen a lot of people, the only thing they know about Robert Palmer is the MTV video with all the, mm -hmm. the girls in the white face makeup, you know, with the yeah. ballet buns, yeah. you know, that, that's the only thing they know. They don't understand that Robert Palmer was a stone cold, badass musician through it, and through. It makes me very sad uh, to realize how much of a short shrift that the media gave Robert. I mean, yeah, it's that. It's the suits, the song, and the girls. And that's how people know him. They don't realize, because when I got with Robert was when he was just beginning his writing phase. Up until then, he had done mostly covers on records, and he did them so well that people thought that he had written them. Uh, because he knew how to, to do covers. He, he would, you know, you always got to bring something to the table, make them your own, da 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 And he did. He would go to the nth degree to, to make them work, or he would drop it. Uh, but, yeah, that was, uh, when I got with him, he was just beginning his songwriting phase, and we just went off on a journey, and there's other things I can tell you that were, there were uh, points that, you know, made things kind of ramp up real quick, like like the record Clues, the second record. There was a reason why it was so different in what happened. But anyway, I got Robert with Robert while he was starting his writing phase, and he and I, we did every kind of music under the sun, and he was a brilliant writer, and we always had the coolest musicians, and we did the greatest, most fun, cool records that no one knows a damn thing about. I know. All they know is addicted, the suits, and the girls. That's yeah. all they know. And I tell people, you know, if you want to know about him, just you need to go through the whole start in 72 with Sneak and Sally and just work your way through it. Yeah. And you'll come out of the other side with a whole different, you know, outlook on Robert Palmer. Well, uh, and, I just, I think it was just, the, it was the greatest gig that a drummer can ever have. And ironically, he and I were best friends off stage and on. So, yeah, it was it, it couldn't have been. I got the best gig in the world and, and I knew it and I was happy about it. Well, it, it makes me happy to hear that because, I mean, you know, I think the other thing that that maybe gets lost a little bit is 
the time that Addicted to Love came out, the the record industry was way different right at that very moment. It, it was kind of like that. That's when you know MTV obviously was a huge influence at that point. You know, right at that mm-hmm. very moment in time. And if you oh, didn't yeah. if you didn't have a video, you didn't have a single kind of thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was where, you know, the electronic stuff and the samples had first started coming into popular music really heavily. Um, you know, so well, yeah, I, we, it, we, actually, we actually started using samples and everything in 1980 on the record Clues. And again, that was a record that was way ahead of its time and there was reasons why. But yeah, but you're you're right, though. I mean, at about that time, mid 80s, is yeah, it was full tilt boogie. Yeah, and I, you know, I think I think that's probably why some of that is just it's so ingrained. Because I mean, my God, you know, I, I was a young guy back then, but you couldn't turn on MTV without seeing that video every, you know, twenty seven minutes or something, you know. Yeah, it was pretty ridiculous, and, and, and it was like the national anthem of the summer, uh, and uh, it was great because it, it certainly. We had been working towards, you know, that kind of success, and we got there. You know, it, uh, that was Tony on drums on that particular track. Um, it, out of the 25 years I was with him, there's like three songs that I didn't play on, and that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so somebody's getting a, a nice uh, quarterly check on those mechanicals. I'll just say that, because it's still oh, in, yeah. in heavy rotation. but. Yeah. Did, did you guys immediately go from, you know, theaters and arenas to stadiums with that? Because I know that you guys just started doing some huge gigs. Yeah, he liked playing, you know, real nice theaters all over the world. I mean, you know, the Art Deco places like the Fox, you know, all of those. He just liked it. Uh, and people would come a little more dressed up to these places. He just thought it, it made for a much cooler evening because the people were dressed up. They were looking good. You know, we're, p- we're performing in this beautiful place, and we always had, you know, we carried our own sound with us. And, and yeah, it was a great night. It was a lot of fun, and everybody won in that situation. But, yeah, we, we were playing but even after that song came out and we we're doing Wembley and stuff like that yeah but he still liked playing the smaller places you know he just did yeah so we ended up instead of one night we would play four nights right you know, kind of right yeah well i mean that makes sense i i just know that Everything exploded. I remember seeing you guys on the, you know, the MTV, you know, what, what were they? The the VMAs, the Video Music Awards. You played the song live yep. on there. I mean, yep. it was, yep. you know, just gangbuster song. And, you know, I, obviously, you know, Robert left us far too early and, you know, suddenly. And, uh, you know, at, at that point, I'm not trying to bring up bad memories, but at that point in time were you just like what do i do now i mean what what was that like for you when he passed yeah uh it it i had already quit oh okay Uh, i had left left brooks and dunn and i was not happy with myself and my role in music and what i was doing my creativity i just was not happy and so um 
I received this, this, it wasn't like a voice speaking to me, but I've gotten these weird things that come to me that it's no doubt about what I'm being told, but it's more like a telepathic sort of thing. And it's only happened like four or five times in my life, but it's all four and five times I followed through with what it told me to do, and it, I, it paid off handsomely. And when I left Brooks and Dunn, uh, this is what the telepathic thing said. It said, okay, quit your job, pay off all your debt by selling everything you have. Sell everything. Get rid of all your debt. Move to the middle of nowhere. Take a serious vow of poverty. Write a novel. Now, I had never even written postcards yet, so <laughs> this was a really bizarre request. But as it turned out, a buddy of mine had a 2,000-acre ranch. He wanted someone to kind of watch over it because he had been robbed the year before. And, and I had worked on cattle ranches before, and I kind of knew what to do, you know. And so, yeah, I was there um, living in the middle of nowhere in this serious battle of poverty. And then, yeah, my mother called me and and said, you know, Robert's, Robert's passed, you know, and it was, yeah, it was a, an incredible shock because he and I had just spoken the week before, but here's what happened. Uh, here's what it did to me. Uh, it made me, cause I had kind of said, I really don't want to make music anymore. I really don't. Now with him, I would have done it because he and I, I was involved with him. It wasn't just, okay, I'm a drummer. I show up, I do my bits. I mean, I, we were, I was working with him on all of the arrangements, you know, I mean, picking out musicians to come play, um, cover art. I mean, just everything. I was involved in everything. And uh, it made it a lot of fun. But when he was gone, I realized, okay, well, those days are over. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll meet someone and that'll pick back up again. And I thought that was going to happen with Robert Plant, but it didn't. But that's okay. Uh, but what it did was... It made me realize, man, this guy gave you the most incredible education that could ever be given to any musician on the face of the earth. I mean, all the things he taught me uh, about uh, music and music from all over the world. I mean, you know, we were cutting all kinds of stuff from all over the world. And I was like, if I let that go, that would be such a waste of all that information and knowledge that I could pass along to somebody. Yeah. So now that he's gone, I'll say that I will amend, you know, my thing, my deal I made with myself. And I said, you know, if someone comes along that's unknown, I said, I will only work with unknowns and I mostly want to work in the studio. At that point in time, I wanted to become a, a really good session musician. That was what I decided to do. But uh, I only wanted to work with unknowns uh, because I just thought that I could pass along some of this knowledge and it would really help some of the younger players to figure stuff out, you know. And so that's that's what I'm. That was the decision I made when he passed away. Is okay. I'm going to not leave music behind. I'm going to stay in it, but only with unknown people that I can help bring something to. And that pretty much happened. Well, and obviously that takes, you know, a, a, a ton of guts 
you know, to, to make that decision and, and stick to it. And I don't want to gloss anything over here, but, you know, you were with Brooks and Dunn for several years and they were the five years. Yeah. You know, they were the kings of the country airwaves during your tenure. I mean, you know, boot, boot, scoot, boogie. I mean, my God, that was, you know, another, as you put it, you know, national anthem of summer kind of kind of deal. You know, that that song was just huge. And, and. You know, I I, I take it, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, certainly, but that was probably more of a sideman sort of gig. That was Nashville then, now, and forever. You know, somebody else probably recorded the parts and you were a a touring paid employee, right? That's it. And and, uh, I did not like it. Now, the first three years were great because the band, the drummer before me, uh, he had a number of issues. And the timing was horrible. The band was a mess when I got with them. And, and it took me about a year to get them to where we cohesed. You know, they, they, they got it. They understood where I was coming from. You know, it's, it's, you're replacing an engine in a car, so it's going to run differently. Yeah. And uh, so it, it took a while to get the band in shape. But those first three years were fun. I mean, fun. I had a good time. Uh, the last two years, not so much. Uh, I mean, I'm in the back listening to Pantera, Far Beyond Driven, writing <laughs> short stories, and they're up listening to bad country music, drinking green beer. I mean, it was just a real disconnect. Um, uh, but yeah, and and so it was, uh, I made the decision that by the first of the year in 99 that I was, uh, I was done. I was done with it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, again, I don't want to gloss anything over, but I do want to be respectful of your time. But, you know, you had some time with Robert Plant and, you know, I, whatever you want to share about that would be incredible because, you know, I grew up, you know, being a disciple of John Bonham, as many, mm-hmm. many drummers are, obviously. I'm, I'm right there. That was one of those groove records I told you I got back then. Well, that was Led Zeppelin, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was that one. So I mean, what was what's it like? You know, if you 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 know you say Bonham was an influence on me, what's it like to mm-hmm. walk into a room with Robert Plant, knowing that you're playing with him today? I mean, that's got to be <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> well, I, I, I was real happy to get the call. I mean, it, it was like because I had been wanting someone else that I could jump in with and go, okay, like with what I did with Robert and contribute to that thing, you know, cause Robert understood what I could bring to the table and allow me to do so. And we built that thing to a huge international success. Now, a lot, a lot of it was due to him and his voice, of course, but we were both working on that stuff. And, um, so I was real proud of what we did. So I always thought that there would be, or at least hoped that there would be uh, round two of that uh, with who I didn't know. But uh, when I got the call from Robert, I thought, well, this may be going to be, it's going to be that. Now, the funny, <laughs> here's a funny thing. When we were at the rehearsal hall for him and he hadn't shown up yet, I went out to the car and was getting my mind right. If you can read between the lines there. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and I just, because it's, it's part of my, thing it's 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 something i do with music it, it puts me in a place where i'm most happy and 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 good it, it I've, I've listened to stuff played straight and i've listened to stuff not straight and i know which one i do better 
so anyway, I was out there getting my brain rearranged, and, and a car pulls up, and, and I don't know who it is, but I'm getting out of the car, and I'm locking it up, and all of a sudden, I hear, Tony! And I turn around, and it's Robert Plant right in my face, trying to show me this drum from Morocco that he had got to with a strict cow skin. And he's banging on it out there, and I'm just like going, whoa. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a mind fuck. I got to tell you, it was a mind fuck. I mean, I, he, can, I can only imagine. He was a total groove. I mean, that guy really understands music. I mean, he gets it. And um, and unfortunately, we were not able to take what we did any further, but he was breaking up with this gal. He didn't like the heat in Austin. And uh, he wanted to get back to his roots of, uh, of, you know, Midland. He wanted to be back in England. Yeah. And there was a, that group of guys, the Sensational Space Shifters, that he'd worked with before. And they're, those guys are badasses. And so he made the decision to move back to England, break up with the girl, and, yeah, and get out of hot Texas and did his do. And that was the end of our thing. But I found out that was kind of, that's kind of his modus operandi. He'll have two or three things going on around the world. And then he kind of decides which one he wants to do. Yeah. And Hey, he can, cause he's Robert Plant, but my time with him, I truly, truly enjoyed. And, and I never could get used to washing my dishes and I'd look up and cause he'd come over the house and we'd listen to music. You know, and uh, he was trying to, you know, bone me up on things that directions he wanted that particular band to go. So he was turning me on because he's an encyclopedia of American music. And uh, but, yeah, I'll never, ever get used to the washing dishes and looking up and seeing the hammer of the gods walking down the driveway coming to your house. Yeah, I mean, I you, you know, you, I, I, ne- I never got used to it. Yeah, you go to the bathroom and you come out and you go, "Holy shit, Robert Plant's sitting on my couch." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but musically, him, he and I got along really, really well. Uh, we understood each other, and, and yeah, I had a great time. And and uh, hey, I'm glad I did it. You know, it was a lot of fun. I can say I played with that guy, and uh, that makes me very happy. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that that keep your time occupied these days. Um, it it's mm-hmm. ju- just happens to be a coincidence. I just got home from Austin, Texas on Monday of this week. Um, my daughter did a three week ballet uh, intensive at Ballet Austin in downtown there. And we went down and yep. picked her up and got her home and all that good stuff. But you know, I, before I reached out to you, of course, you know, we're pals on social media and all that stuff, but I was just kind of looking through some of your incredible photography that you do. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can explain it, but it is, um, you, you're not taking pictures of birds and, and people. <laughs> you, 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 but no, it, no round hay bales in the field. It, it, exactly. Um, but it definitely evokes an emotion when you see one of your pieces. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into photography and, and how that's keeping you busy these days. Um, yeah, well, what I do is wabi-sabi. Um, wabi-sabi is Japanese for uh, in, imperfect perfection. And that's pretty much what it what it is I do. Now, I have been taking pictures for you know, 
40 years. Uh, I've never done anything with them. It's just been kind of odd times. I had this one camera that I had with Robert. Robert was huge into photography. He was an incredible photographer himself. And he and I had the same kind of eye. We saw things in similar ways. And so traveling with him everywhere, and, and, and I'm going to all these you know bookstores and stuff and finding all these amazing European photo books that just were teaching me so much. And I'm taking pictures of all the tours and everywhere we're going. I'm taking pictures everywhere. And then I'm living in L.A., and one day someone breaks into my house, and, and I had all these uh, slides in these little lock boxes. And I think someone thought that there was probably, you know, money and jewelry and stuff like that. So they stole them, and I'm sure they got down the street and just threw them out the window. Yeah. But 14, 14 years of, of my picture-taking, gone. Man. And, and bummed me out. And so I didn't get another camera for another 10 years. I was on the road with Brooks and Dunn, and we were in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I was at a pawn shop, and there was a... Nikon sitting there, and they only wanted like 50 bucks for it, and you know, Canons and everything are like 200, and I asked the guy, I was like, why are you only charged? Is it broken? What's wrong with it? He goes, no, it's fine. I said, well, something's wrong with it. He goes, it's manual. <laughs> well, that, uh, yeah, I couldn't throw the money down at him fast enough. And then I took pictures on the road with Brooks and Dunn, and I was enjoying that, and then I leave Brooks and Dunn. I'm in my battle poverty at my buddy's ranch. He's also an amateur amateur photographer. He brings over a, a macro lens one day. I didn't even know that there was such a thing available to the to the public because I, I've 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 never have had any sort of um, academia in any sort of creative thing I've ever done. I've always learned it just picking up on something. You know, we didn't have um, videos and we didn't even have drum schools back then. There was Berkeley and Juilliard and that was it. Yeah. Uh, but as far as, you know, any sort of PTI or any, anything like that, there was no, there was none of that kind of stuff. So, uh, but the funny thing was that he gave me this macro lens and he says, you might dig it. And so I'm out taking pictures one day and right as we're coming to the house, there was a bush hog there, and I saw some rust on the back of it, and I went to take a picture of it, and I flipped out at what I saw to the viewfinder, and I took it, went and got them developed uh, at Walmart there about 40 miles away, uh, and you can get these little contact sheets done for nothing, and then only pay for the ones that you wanted to blow up and have be regular photos. And I remember seeing that what I had gotten from the back of that bush hog, that rust. And it was, I, I, it was an abstract painting. I mean, it was beautiful. I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. All of the textures and colors and just everything about it flipped me out to the point where I, I was in a vow of poverty and I could not afford another roll of film, but I said, fuck it. I gotta be another roll of film. <laughs> I gotta go back and take more pictures. I buy a roll of film, I haul ass back to the house, I spool up the film, I go running after the bush hog, I lean down, click, and the thing jams. And that was it for that camera. It was broken. It jammed up. And I was unable to take another one of those for 10 years because I had to wait until I got out of my power of poverty and then I had to save up enough money to be able to buy one. 
And yeah, and then I got back into it. But another quick story, uh, when I bought it, it was not a manual like I was used to. And when I would try to manually do it, it was not acting like the other one. And I was very concerned and disheartened. <laughs> and, and so it sat for two years, just me looking at it, just frustrated. I've got this incredible device and I can't even use it. And then I, there was this photographer friend of mine who I went out, took him to dinner. And I was like, tell me what to do, please. You know, I, I feel like a fool. I bought this camera and I haven't taken one picture with it. And I showed it to him. He goes, oh, easy. What? Put it on automatic and take pictures and have fun, stupid. <laughs> yeah, so just go to town, right? Wait a second. You mean this thing does that? Yes, it does that. Holy shit. Yeah. And I went out that afternoon, and I mean the floodgates open. And I now have over probably 2,000 in my portfolio from that. It's, it's I call it the ephemerata study. It's the study of... It's the end of the industrial age. Uh, they had materials that rust. All the new materials that they're making cars and everything else out of, they don't rust. So you go to a junkyard now and you go in there and you can't find rust anywhere because it's all new cars. So what I'm actually doing is I'm chronicling the end of the industrial age because one day these, you know, when when it starts rusting, there's a gestation process and time that all these colors from the man-made stuff and nature's trying to take it over. And that's what it's doing. Nature's reclaiming everything that man has made. And so in the initial gestation process, amazing crap happens that to me looks like a painting. Now I was never good with a paintbrush. I just couldn't do anything. And so, but I've always enjoyed abstract expressionism. That just was my favorite sort of art. And what I was finding and what I am finding is that's what it is. And I don't crop or anything like that. And so I have to get that thing just right. I'm twisting and turning, raising up, going down, moving around until I finally, boom, there it is. And Cartier Brisson, the very famous French photographer, that was his thing, don't crop. And uh, so, yeah, I don't crop and that's it. It's That's the painting. That's it. Now... I don't know why, but uh, an amazing number of people have reacted to it. And there's something about the organic nature of it, um, but there's also something about what they say, I have an eye. And I don't know what that is, but I guess I have it. Again, I, I don't have any academia behind any of this, but I just kind of get out and figure shit out. Just like I did drums, I just figured shit out. Yeah, well, I mean... I think that's the way to do it. That's kind of how I did it. You know, I, I was never, you know, geared towards being taught anything. I think I'm bullheaded enough that I'll just figure it out mm -hmm. eventually. Right. Um, yeah. But you, I just want to say this, you know, to, to our listeners. Yes, we've got a world class drummer on the show today, but we have a world class artist. Your photography is just it's amazing. You know, I mean, I, I see some of your stuff on social media and I'm just like, wow, that's so cool. It's uh, Donnie, it's almost unfair that that you're <laughs> you're living this second artistic life right before us, you know, <laughs> it's uh, I've, I've been just real fortunate and uh, and to the point to where it's it's kind of 
I enjoy it as much as I do making music. And I also enjoy writing as much as I do making music. And I've got tons. I've written a novel. I did write that novel, by the way. And uh, I've written uh, probably two or three books worth of short stories. I mean, i got tons of stuff. And right now I'm writing a bunch of memories from the Robert stuff, how songs were created. Like I did uh, Discipline of Love. That's one of the ones that if you go in my notes section, uh, on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I have these stories. They're there. Okay, uh, cool. There was also looking for clues. Uh, I, I told I told about that song, how that came about, and people are really enjoying that because uh, again, we did some a lot. We had a lot of fun in the studio, and we did things in very unusual ways. And uh, I'm finding a lot of the uh, the people like to hear about this because that was the one good thing with Robert is that I have one foot in the old analog world and I got another foot that's firmly in the digital world. And I've been lucky to have both experiences. So every time I go into the studio, I bring a, a pretty good wealth of knowledge with me. Well, yes, no, no doubt about it. But I think that's a really good point in is that, you know, you guys were on the cutting edge of the digital technology while still embracing the old school analog, you know, I, and I think far too many people now, you know, people younger than me, there's no such thing as a studer machine in a studio. You know, um, I, I had the great engineer, Mike Frazier on the show and he was like, do you know how hard it is to find splice tape these days? You know, even yeah. even if you want to do it on reel to reel, you know, I hope you don't mess up because we can't find splice tape anymore. You know, that's right. that's worth anything. So, right. I, I find I find all of this just immensely, um, you, you know, entertaining, and I, I can't wait to read some of that stuff. Um, Donnie, I want to be respectful of your time. I can't thank you enough for doing this. But one of the things that we do with all of our guests. Offer us a good piece of advice for other musicians, other drummers. Lay it on us. Stay curious. And that's the only thing I really know how to say. Stay curious. And and and, and because there's such a wealth of things available through YouTube, uh, you know, you can hear just almost, just about every damn thing that's ever recorded is on there now. <laughs> uh, it, it's phenomenal. And, and, uh, and I just think it's important to stay curious and always take yourself out of, out of your comfort zone. You know, I mean, never get complacent. Don't even think about it. Um, but yeah, and just, and just, if your curiosity stays on, you're always going to be learning. I mean, I'm, I've been, I finally became the drummer I always wanted to be in 2015. Now, that took me, you know, almost 50 years to do it, but I finally did it. And I was real happy that I continued to do it even after I had quit in the early 2000s. I'm glad that I kept going because, yeah, I finally became the session guy, the drummer, the drummer. I always wanted to be. I finally did it. And now when I record things, I hear it back and I'm, like, satisfied, you know. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of when I would hear early stuff with, like, uh, Russ Kunkel or 
or uh, Keltner or someone like that, and I would listen to it, and I would just go, listen to what they're, Jim Gordon, you know, I mean, there's so many, Picaro, I mean, there's Larry London, I mean, yeah, I can go on and on, and on and on, on, Richie Hayward. But that, um, when I would listen back to stuff, I would just be so satisfied with every little symbol hit, you know, Hal Blaine, I mean, I can just go on and on and on about these guys. And uh, But now, uh, when I go in the studio and I can tackle any kind of music, because the education I got, we were doing everything under the sun, you know, from Indian raga to African, you know, Swahili to, you know, all of it, just all of it. We were doing it all, because Robert was curious about it, and he wanted to, you know, sing it, because he was a great singer, and he could. Um, so, yeah, he always, you know, kept me alive and curious. And I saw the benefits that it paid off when you would go down those rabbit holes and figure stuff out. So, yeah, curiosity is, is huge in my book, you know. Yeah, that's that's a great piece of advice. Now, uh, for folks out there that, that have listened to this episode, um, you've got a website. It's DonnieWynn.com, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Do you do any kind of lessons or master classes in and around the Austin area? Oh, and no, and, and I only had one lesson. It was from Joe Picaro, Jeff's dad. That lesson lasted me 10 years, uh, and I just never had another one. Robert always would say, you don't need lessons, just play. You know, I mean, <laughs> if, here, go go learn this. You know, he'd give me something from Africa. Okay, that'll keep me for three years, you know. But, uh, so, so, oh, so in go other ahead. words, if, if somebody's seeking you out to, to, learn some stuff from you that's not really something you're doing right now you know no uh, but as i told you before we even got into this i have found that even though when people ask me that i my my pat answer is i don't even know what it is i do <laughs> i mean i sit down and music starts playing and my hands and feet start moving and i'm in shock i mean and that really is what happens now that said if you were to ask me, okay, why did you play that way in that song? Well, I can say, well, you know, Charlie Watts did this thing one time on this one song, and then there was this other thing that Richie Hayward did. And, you know, I mean, I can break it down and tell you exactly why I did what I did, you know. And, you know, what were the lyrics? Well, the lyrics told me, you know, this kind of story, so I couldn't make it happy. I had to play sad, you know, or verse of vice or anything. But, um, but yeah, I, I I have found that I can explain things, and I can, yes, I can. And there's someone down in Chattanooga, which is where I'm kind of going to be making my base camp uh, for the next few years, and they've really been on me about teaching. And so for the first time in my life, I'm actually thinking about it. Okay. All right. Well, that's close enough to me that, that I may be your first guy. How about that? <laughs> so fair enough well it's a shame that it, it's gone so quick because gosh there's so much more to tell i know like the clue like the clues record i mean that so we can make a whole segment on just that record and how it came to be 
Now, luckily, I'm writing all this stuff down, so it'll be out there at some point. But, yeah, there's just there's so much more that we could talk about. So if there's anything you want to go back and retouch or anything you want to ask, or you know, we can always come back to it. It's totally up to you. Well, we have to have you back. I mean, that's just all there is to it. You're welcome on this show anytime. I mean, I, I could, yeah. you, you know, you're you're such a wealth of knowledge, and you are, without a doubt, one of the most colorful guys out there uh you know i mean i and i'm not making light of anything but you you're willing to tell the stories you know i've had some guests on here you know i'm not going to point any fingers but you know they were kind of tight-lipped and they were like yeah you know everything's great you know but you're willing to actually you know tell us about the scars and stuff which is cool so we'll have you back anytime Right. Well, the scars, I mean, if you've gone that far to earn it, yeah, you got to be proud of them things. Absolutely. I mean, I agree completely, but, you know, I've had a blast. Um, we will absolutely have you back real soon. Uh, we're going to send yeah. some folks your way over to DonnieWynn.com. Um, yeah. And it, also on Facebook, um, the if you want to see the art, uh, like I said, the short stories, and, and there's music on SoundCloud. Um, I did a, some stuff with Jason Corsaro right before he passed away. Uh, are you familiar with him? I'm not, but I will be now. Ooh, crap. Uh, like a Virgin, Some Like It Hot, Addicted to Love, Black Hole Sun, all of the Sakamoto stuff, all the Laswell stuff. Uh, you want me to keep going? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us uh, about the, it. The, the public image, uh, that generic record they did, uh, where it was Tony Williams and Ginger Baker playing with Johnny Rotten. Yeah. Uh, that was Jason mixing that record. Jason was the, he was the best drum engineer I think that's ever been in contemporary times. Um, Tony Williams and Elvin both worked with him and both of them swore that they would never work with another drum engineer the rest of their lives. And they didn't. Wow. They always worked with Jason. But he just had a special thing, and I knew that he was not well, and he had, this wealthy guy had kind of just made him, you know, he took care of this wealthy guy in his sandbox up in Lake Hoppetcong, New Jersey. But he wasn't in, you know, in the big, you know, the big show anymore. And I felt bad for him, and he had come up and developed all these new sounds. And I was like, well, we got to, have people be able to listen to these things. So I flew up and we just took a day and, and he would just get the sounds up and then I would go in there and just start wailing and play. And we, we took that stuff and put it on SoundCloud. So you can hear all of it. Yeah. I've got to check that out. And I, I don't know how in the world that, that name escapes me, but I, I'm just not, I'm not familiar. So I appreciate you turning me on to that. Oh, well, again, I was, you know, because of Robert, I was lucky to work with just some of the most amazing people, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I was, it was just a great gig to have. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, you, you've lived a million lives in one, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the guy lives in Nassau. We're recording at Compass Point. I go down to do clues and... Stones are doing emotional rescue. The Talking Heads are doing Remaining Light. ACDC's doing Back in Black, and Bob Marley's doing something. But you know that's all going on at the same time at that place, and it was like that all the time. 
you know, and then we left the island and went over to Italy and built a studio over there and just, you know, it it was, yeah, I mean, of all the people in the world for me to get with, that guy. Yeah. And it, and it was, and when, you know, I was growing up and the record pressure drop, especially, is the one that got me. That was the one Little Pete backed him up on. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just totally lucky that our paths crossed and he liked what he heard and, and we got together and we just had a big, big, big run of it. It was fantastic. Well, we will have to have you back and, and dig a little bit more in depth into some of this stuff. I would love to do that. If you're, if you're willing to, to donate the time oh, to us. Absolutely. Because there's, there's more to tell that I think people would find interesting. Now I'm trying to write them out so that people can get an idea, but it's always fun to talk and hear the voice, you know? So yeah, there's, there's so much more that we could talk about that. I would be more than happy to, because I do, I want to, give stuff back, you know, everything I've been able to pick up and learn, I want to give it back. Because again, we're in a new phase of music to where the things I would tell them, uh, I think would be educational for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were talking when you were telling the story about your first exposure to music, talking about, you know, the, the spindle. And I mean, some people don't even know you talking about your dad dropping a 45 record. I think there, <laughs> there is a whole generation of people that think they're all 33s, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Donnie, thank you. Thank you so much. We'll have you back real soon. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. I look forward to it. All right, man. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. See ya. Yeah. Bye for now. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up episode 76 of the drum shuffle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. Also, thanks for your patience with us uh, as we took a little bit of time off during the summer. Uh, We do have some interviews coming up that you're not going to want to miss. So as always, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. As always, we love hearing from you throughout the week. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can send us an email. We do answer every single email that we get throughout the week. Uh, of course, the drumshuffle.com is our web address, uh, and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Got a lot of stuff going on, um, a lot of great interviews that will be coming up here over the next few weeks. Uh, so please make sure you visit those websites so you can see all the different stuff that we have going on uh, with the podcast, with me personally and my playing life. Uh, got all kinds of social media uh, links on my website at jamieeds.com. Click those, follow me and the show on those social media links. We do try to update those a little bit more frequently than just the podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without all of you. Next week, I'm going to be joined by a great, great jazz drummer out of New York. His last six albums have charted on the jazz charts, so you're not going to want to miss our conversation with Josh Feldstein next week. I hope everybody has a fantastic week. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>